Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well for you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm about a, a court low again uh, this morning. I, I, I struggle with um, insomnia and have for years and, and was on sleeping pills for a while and they were terrible. And so I eventually quit those, but um, sometimes I just have times where I just can't go to sleep. And last night was one of those times I was up till three and then I woke up at 7.40 this morning to come in here. So um, fortunately you get tired enough, eventually you fall asleep no matter what. Lord, um, I, I became a, not Lord, I'm sorry, I became a, a born-again Christian um, right around the time of my 15th birthday, maybe not long after that, I don't remember exactly when, um, I do remember it was on a Saturday afternoon, um, after reading a book by Billy Graham called How to Be Born Again, but uh, within a month or maybe six weeks of that time, so my summer break as a, as a sophomore, finishing up my sophomore year in high school. No, my freshman year, my freshman year. Uh, my mother bought me a book, and I don't know why she bought me this particular book, um, but she did. And the book was A Man Called Peter. Now, that's not a book that probably, we got enough older folks in this congregation, most of the older folks are probably uh, uh, familiar with that book at least, they know of its existence, but probably most younger people aren't. It was the biography of a, a Presbyterian minister uh, who came to the United States from Scotland in the depths of the Great Depression and uh, eventually was asked to become the chaplain of the United States Senate right before World War II began and was uh, something of a spiritual sustenance for those political leaders during that time of great national emergency. Uh, he, he died young of a heart attack in 1947. Uh, the book was written in 1949 by his wife, Catherine Marshall, who became a celebrated Christian author in her own right in the 60s, or the 70s and the 80s. Uh, in 1952, there was actually a movie made that was based on the book. Uh, but I, I read this book, and uh, at the end of it, I said, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be a, a Presbyterian minister. Now, we were Methodists, and I didn't know anything about what that meant, but I knew that that was what God was calling me to, and it took me a long time to figure out what that meant and to get in the right place, but here I am all these years later, um, as a, almost 40 years later as a Presbyterian minister. Now, I've always had a strong interest in the past and in history, um, but becoming a Christian and reading this book added a whole new dimension to that. And, and here's why. As I read from this book about the life of a minister and how that was in the 1930s and 1940s in America and how the church was in the 1930s and the 1940s and how the broader culture was for all its problems in the 1930s and the 1940s. And then I looked around at how the church and the culture were in my time 
and at this point it was 1985, uh, I could see the, the pattern of decline from Peter Marshall's day, as I understood it, to 1985. And feeling called to ministry, I began to think about how, what God would want me to do, what part I might have to play in understanding how to bring the church to repentance one day. I wanted to understand what happened and how things went wrong and what exactly did go wrong. And as I began to read and to investigate and to learn, I discovered that things were actually not all that good for the church or in American society in Peter Marshall's day in the 1930s and the 1940s. Um, so it was, the book was idealizing things a little bit. For instance, in the 1920s, before Peter Marshall ever got here, the Presbyterian Church in the United States, and not just the Presbyterian Church, all the mainline churches, uh, was regularly ordaining men who didn't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, who didn't believe in the resurrection or in the miracles described in the Bible. And they were making these men into ministers, and nobody batted an eye. And I, and I had thought that those were the good old days. And if the good old days weren't then, then when were the good old days? And, and what happened to turn the good old days into the bad new days? How did things go wrong in their time? And so I went further back in history, and I kept reading, and I kept learning, and I'd settle on a certain period in history or a certain place in the world where the history of the church was unfolding, and I'd study it and think, are these the good old days? Is this the place where things were pretty good and people were living the gospel out and, and, and it was a good, a good time to be a Christian and a good place to be a Christian, an easy place to be a Christian? And I'd, I'd find out that the, they weren't the good old days. And so I'd keep going further back trying to figure out what went wrong because if you can figure out what went wrong, then maybe you can make things better today for us. And along the way, I got a good education in the history of ideas. And not just Christian ideas, but worldly ideas. Indeed, understanding the worldly ideas sometimes is actually more important because the devil is always at work trying to import the worldly ideas into the church, and there are always nitwits in the church who think that's a wonderful idea to do that. And so I got this education, and I began to see, as I pieced all these things together, I began to see the absolute genius of Satan. I could see how Satan would drop an idea into the head of a thinker, say in 1680, in the case of Rousseau. And this guy that he did this to was most likely a fringe figure in his own day. Very few people, very few important people paid attention to him, and they might have even persecuted him. But that idea was powerful in his mind because it seemed to solve a particular problem that was bothering him. And so he'd write about this idea, and he'd speak publicly about this idea, and he'd argue and persuade others who were also bothered by the same problem that this guy was bothered by. And he would say, if we just do this, if we adopt this idea, then things will get better. And so they would accept his idea. It would work to persuade others, and that idea would spread, and it would influence people, and it would become widely accepted in society. And when that happens, then this idea tumbles down through history, being passed from one person to another, almost like a virus. And it would combine with other ideas 
other mind viruses that Satan had planted elsewhere, and great sin and great chaos and great damage would eventually result both in the culture and in the church. Those of you who lived through the 1960s and early 1970s, you were there at the time when all those ideas kind of coalesced and things changed. And you remember it. It felt one way in the 50s and then all of a sudden it felt another way in the 60s. And you can blame the Beatles or Elvis or whoever you want to, but it really was ideas. And it was the ideas of guys that were old by the time the hippies came along, like Hemingway, things like that. Because people always act according to the ideas that they accept and believe are true. Satan is brilliant. He understands us. He has a deep grasp of how human beings work, and he has a master plan that has been in effect for millennia. When he assaulted Eve with the idea that she could not trust God to care for her well-being and she needed to take matters into her own hand, he set that plan in motion in the world, and it is rolling on today until it reaches its appointed end. And a a large part of what I do, how I understand my vocation as a pastor, is to identify the ideas from Satan that have taken up residence inside of your mind, that you have accepted as true in complete ignorance, probably that you aren't even consciously aware of, and to, to ferret those out and to lay them before you and then to show you from the scriptures the ideas are contrary to the truth, and you need to change your ideas. And so I I invite you then, after laying these ideas out and then showing you what's true from the Scripture, I invite you to change, to adopt God's true ideas in place of those old ones, and to correct your mental map of reality, so to speak, with the help of the Spirit of God. And that's my appointed role. That's how I understand myself. Uh, Because Jesus is far more brilliant than Satan, and he too has had a master plan from before the foundation of the world, and Jesus has the best information about how your life should go and how you can flourish. Well, because the family is the basic building block of any healthy society, Satan, particularly in the last hundred years or so, has concentrated his attacks there. He has attacked men and women, and their understanding of themselves and their understanding of what that means. He has attacked husbands and wives. He has attacked parents and children with his mind virus ideas because he, if he can undermine the family, it is so much easier to sow widespread destruction everywhere else. On the other hand, if a child can be brought into the world within the context of a loving and secure home where the father provides for his family so that the mother can focus her attention on the child for this critical, irreplaceable first four years of life, when when that child is received and joyously nurtured by both parents, then that child will most likely develop into a balanced and stable personality. He or she will be able to weather the challenges and rejections of life, But if the child is not joyously received in a stable, loving, secure, nurturing environment, especially for those first four crucial years, then in the words of one writer, quote, we are but walking wounded 
and our life is more or less a shambles until we die. So even from just a, a, a basic common grace, not talking about saved or unsaved, we're just talking about the good of society and the psychological good and the social good of the child, even there, things are critically important. But when we add to that the fact that the first place where evangelism ought to happen is in the Christian home, where the gospel is not only spoken, but is also modeled day in and day out so that God's general principle is in effect. If you train up a child in the way he should go, when he's old, he won't depart from it. You begin to see the eternal significance of the Christian home as God has designed it. And you can see why Satan has been so busy attacking it. If you'd like just, just an example, uh, if you go to the church's Facebook site, I, I posted a four-minute clip of an interview with a woman named Sue Ellen Browder who wrote for Cosmopolitan magazine in the early to mid-70s all the way through to the early 1990s. And she says, I wrote propaganda. She's repented. She's become a Roman Catholic and she's repented and she's admitting what she did. She said, I wrote propaganda based on deliberate lies and fabrications in order to get women to embrace the idea that true happiness and satisfaction in life is to be found in guilt-free sex, childlessness, abortion on demand, and devotion to a career. And in the mid to late 70s, this all coalesced into a symbol called the Cosmo Girl. And she said, I, I helped create the Cosmo Girl in people's minds. I made women believe that they should become Cosmo Girls. And every woman who wishes to stay home with her kids, even today, fights with the Cosmo Girl. And why, does she, why did she do that? Why did she help to invent this artificial propaganda person, the Cosmo Girl? Uh, to make money off of women. To, to teach them to be dissatisfied with their lives as they were, and then to realize that, hey, if I just buy the things that are advertised in this magazine, that will help me to become the Cosmo Girl, and then I'll be satisfied and content and happy, and I'll have a good life. Because I'll be having guilt-free sex, abortion on demand, uh, uh, a career, and, and uh, all the things that go with it. And that'll make me happy. Well, it hasn't actually worked out that way for many, many women, but, but that's what she did. Let me give you another example. Uh, scholars estimate that in the last 10,000 years of human history, mean, violent, savage men with all their toxic masculinity have killed about a billion people as they fought in their wars. A billion people in 10,000 years. And everybody thinks, oh, the testosterone. Oh, it's so toxic, it's so brutal. The world would be a much better place if women ran things, wouldn't it? That's what the feminist movement says. But what we're taught to neglect is the fact that the gentle, peaceful women in the world have killed about 1.7 billion people through abortion in just the last 40 years, just since 1980. So women have killed almost twice as many people as men have in warfare. And we took, we took 10,000 years to do it. Women did it in 40. You can, you can find that at numberofabortions.com, if you don't believe me. And so these are the kinds of lies that Satan is pushing on us. Satan has taught our society to hate 
children and to view children as a nuisance. Children are an intolerable interruption of the pursuit of a life of self-expressive ambition. Now, men have always been prone and tempted to think that way. And as a matter of fact, most people don't know that the pro-abortion movement started with men in the 1960s who wanted to push this thing forward. But now women have been tricked into going along with it. Recently, a study was released that said that almost one half of the women under 45 are childless in the United States of America today. That's a new record. Half of the women under the age of 45 have never had a child. Well, it's interesting to talk about these things. And sometimes you can throw up your hands in despair, but what, what's it supposed to look like? How is it supposed to work according to God? Well, this chapter in Ephesians tells us, and we plowed some of that ground before Christmas, talking about husbands and wives, and we won't replow it, but we'll mention it. The, How's it supposed to look? How's a Christian home supposed to look? Well, the husband and father is the spiritual head of the home. And he is to be a man after God's own heart. He is strong. He's a man of character. He is a man who sacrifices when necessary for the well-being of his wife and children and doesn't resent it. He does it willingly. He is one who does not foolishly craft a lifestyle that requires two incomes to maintain it before he and his wife have decided to have children. And especially, he's careful about taking on debt, especially consumer debt. In, in early marriage, before children come along and both husband and wife are working, um, rather than just celebrating and spending all their money on themselves, they crush any and all consumer debt that they have. Just pay it off. Student loans, credit cards, car payments, whatever they can pay off, they, they pay off. And so he's prudent about things. For instance, he's prudent about the kinds of vehicles that he buys. He buys used vehicles with a good reputation for reliability and durability, and then he drives his cars until they're worn out, and he maintains them very carefully. He is marked by prayer daily, and the reading of the scriptures daily. That's a part of his personal life. That's a part of his family life. He reads his scriptures with his wife and he prays with his wife. And when the children come along, they have family worship and read the scriptures together and pray together. And in my family, we sang together. He does that. He takes responsibility for that. He takes his family to church and he serves the church according to his spiritual gifts. And why is that? Well, it's because he puts God first his wife second, his kids third, and himself last. He loves his wife as Christ loves the church. He would die for his wife and kids. His wife is a godly woman. She is calm and she is centered because of her deep relationship with God and the confidence that she has in his care. She is respectful of her husband while also being thoughtful and capable so that she can give him advice that's wise and useful as well from her position of strength and wisdom. She brings her purity and her loyalty to the marriage. She has learned to be content with the lifestyle dictated by her husband's wages. And so she doesn't wallow in discontent about the size of her home 
or the fanciness of her car or the wardrobe that she has or the vacations that they take or that they don't take or how much jewelry she has. She's not addicted to social media and spends her whole day on Facebook comparing herself to others who are probably lying about what's going on in their own lives anyway. She is a high-value woman, and she is an asset in every way to their marriage. And then God grants, hopefully, the gift of children. And she recognizes that she brings unique gifts to this crucial role of motherhood. And so she settles down and she exercises those gifts. She she doesn't try to change her husband except by prayer and her own godly conduct towards him. She knows that motherhood and especially mothering very young children is often exhausting and it doesn't feel like there's very much you left over at the end of the day, but she's not resentful. It's a price to be paid, and she knows that, but she's not resentful about paying that price. She knows that this is the period in her life where she learns to die to self most thoroughly and thus please Christ. And so through this process of dying to self daily and trusting God, she acquires a gentle and a quiet spirit through this process. She teaches her children to honor her husband, their father, by her words, but also by her own example, because she honors him. And her husband teaches them to honor her in the same way, because he honors her. He says to them, you will not disrespect your mother, and if you do, there will be consequences. And he supports her in her role. In the the same way, uh, she teaches her children to know and to love God. She's fervent in prayer. She's deeply read in the scriptures. She's calm at the center of her being, and so she is the calm center of her whole home. Her children are happy. They are secure. They are well-disciplined. Her husband cannot wait to come home to her each night because she is his respite from an often harsh, critical, and wearying world. He loves to be with her. It gives him great peace and great joy to be in her company. And he feeds her, her soul, her spirit, out of that sense of peace and joy. The husband and the wife stand together And they present a united front to their children. They they know, the children know that that we're never going to be able to split mom and dad and and divide them so that we can get our way by exploiting divisions between mom and dad. There's none of that. There's none of that, which requires leadership. Healthy leadership and healthy submission. And the father in particular, according to the scriptures, is responsible for discipline and for training, training the children in all kinds of ways. Though, of course, the mother often carries this out on a day-to-day basis, especially when the children are young. Both parents clearly understand that their fundamental task towards their children is a very specific one in the Bible. They are not concerned so much primarily 
about their children becoming, for instance, high-performing athletes. It's fine that they play sports, but that's not the point of life. They're not primarily concerned about their children getting great grades so that they can get into the right college, so that they can have worldly advancement and a lucrative career. That's fine if it happens, but it's not the most important thing. The most important concern is that their children know and love and follow Jesus. And so the whole tenor of their home is geared towards doing all that can be done from a human perspective to bring that about. The children are prayed for and prayed with. They're taught the scriptures from infancy as Timothy was, which Paul says alone can make a man or a woman wise unto salvation. The children are not permitted to do or speak evil without being punished for it. And yet when they are punished, they are not punished harshly so that it does not engender resentment in their children. Their parents are very careful about the music and the books and the entertainment that they allow their children to consume. The parents are very careful about the children's friends because they know that bad company corrupts good morals. Believe it or not, I was that kid that nobody would let their kid play with when I was nine years old. I was a bad, bad kid. And they were right in not letting their kids play with me. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's what the Bible says. The parents are very, very careful about smartphones and about computer use and tablet use because Satan is alive and well on the internet. The parents teach the children responsibility and the necessity of work. And so these children, as a consequence, develop good character and virtues like honesty and timeliness and responsibility for the property of others and thrift and diligence and saving and giving generously and integrity. They learn all these things. They learn them not just verbally, but they learn them by experience. Work should be something that everyone in the family, including the children, habitually and cheerfully engages in. You should never grumble outwardly about the work that's to be done in your home. And you should never use work as a punishment. Because all you do if you grumble and use it as a punishment is you teach them to hate work if they do. And work is a necessary part of the redeemed life. It's a necessary part of the world. God is a worker and he made us to be workers and work is a good gift. And I know that's hard to believe when you're facing the fifth load of laundry, but work is a good gift. And so you want to teach them to work. But the parents also recognize that no human being can cause another human being to repent and believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they are wise and do not try and force that upon them. Do they make them go to church? Sure. I mean, you make them go to school. I get get so weirded out by the people who are like, well, I'm afraid to make him go to church because then he'll hate church and he won't want to go to church. It's like, well, do you feel that way about school? I don't like school. Okay, you don't have to go. No, you sent him to school. Well, you send them to church. You're going to church just like you go to school. There's no discussion. Uh, do, you, do you make them read and learn their Bibles and the, and the catechism? Yes. Absolutely. 
Well, I, I don't want to teach them that the Bible is boring. Well, is that how you approach their math education? I don't want to learn algebra. It's boring. Okay, you don't have to. No. You say, suck it up and deal with it, buttercup. Life is full of things you don't want to do. Get to work on first, outer, inner, last, and quadratic equations. Go on. Get to work. You do that. Well, you say the same thing with their Bibles. You're going to learn your Bible. You're going to learn the catechism. You're going to know this stuff. Do you, do you discipline them when they do evil and reward them when they do good? Absolutely. But you can't compel them to come to Christ. Only the Spirit of God can draw them to Christ. And he works when and how he pleases. And usually not on your schedule. So instead, you know that your wisest course of action is to be an example to them of life in Christ, day in and day out. And you regularly put them in places and in postures where God has promised that he will bless. And that's things like church and study of the scriptures and family prayer time. And you do all you can to remove temptations, to remove hindrances and the snares of the devil from their lives. You do all you can. But you also recognize that you're not in control of that outcome. And so you leave that with God. And you rest in God. You may have a lot of anxiety as you watch some of the things your kids do, especially as they get older. But your confidence is not in your ability to get them to stop doing those things. Your confidence is in God. And because of that, because you've left it with God, you are at rest in God. And if you do that, you will be easy in your own soul. And you will be easy and gentle with your children without compromising anything. If you don't do that, you'll be angry and anxious and mean and rigid with them. And that will do more harm than good. I promise you. Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, when it's all said and done, the main thing we can do is just to live our lives with Jesus, walking with him day in and day out, humbly and restfully, and let them watch us. Let them watch us, because they're watching you. Let them see us repent and apologize when we sin against one another when we sin against them have you ever gone to your children and said i should not have done that i'm sorry please forgive me no i can't do that that would shatter the facade of authority no refusing to repent will shatter the facade of authority let them see mom and dad loving and cherishing each other in the lord let them see us grow in wisdom and in obedience and in love ourselves. Let them see us increasing over time in kindness and gentleness year after year. Let them see us forsaking anger. Let them see us keep our commitments and our vows, even when it's hard, even when it's costly, even when it hurts. Let them see us forgive when someone sins against us and causes us great grief and damage. Let them see us using our own tongue to heal instead of to wound. 
Let them see us bearing hardship and suffering with calm patience, confident in God's care and God's provision. Let them see us pray. And then let them see God's answers to our prayers. And when it comes time to die, let them see us die well. There's a great little verse in Hebrews, I think it's chapter 10, it might be into chapter 11. No, it's chapter 10. And it talks about Jacob. And it says, Jacob, as he was dying, worshipped the Lord. He leaned on his staff and he worshipped the Lord as he was dying. Just fix it in your mind that you're going to live like that and you're going to die like that. Let them see us die well, worshiping the Lord as we depart from this life for the next and that we are joyous and at rest. You see, if you live a life like that in front of your children and in front of everyone else, frankly, that you know, then God will use you. And he will use you to bring many souls to Jesus Christ because you will have credibility. You won't need to be really, really good at overcoming objections to the gospel. There won't be any. People will just say, tell me. Tell me about your family. Tell me about your life. How how did you get to this place where you're this kind of person? And you can say, oh, once I was struggling with all the same things that you struggle with, and sometimes I still do, but God has given me great victory in Jesus Christ, and let me tell you how it works. Now, people will come to Christ near and far if you live a life like that. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer. If I have said anything true and helpful and good and right, cause it to be pressed home in the hearts of those who hear. If I have said anything wrong or unhelpful, cause it to be forgotten and let no offense or stumbling block be taken. In Jesus' name.